Amen. I had a great privilege yesterday of officiating and being part of the wedding of the former Allison Willis, now Allison Hamilton, and her new husband, Will. It was a great privilege and joy because I had the opportunity to preach the gospel to a room really full of mostly strangers, people that I really didn't know and ha- had no idea of their walk with Christ or, or maybe their need for Christ. And so it was a great privilege to be a part of such a special day, but it is, I believe, a greater privilege to be a part of the gathering of the saints on the Lord's Day and having the opportunity to open with you the Word of God. So let's do just that. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 3, and we'll be looking this morning kind of narrowly at verses 1 through 2, really verses 1 through 7 of this third chapter, I think kind of compose a unit of thought, but we're going to kind of zone in on verses 1 and 2 this week, and then we'll look at the, the larger context of the verses, Lord willing, next week. Peter, in verses 1 and 2, writes of his purpose in writing this letter, his purpose in writing this letter is that the church, I believe, would be courageous. So that's the title for the message today, The Courageous Church. The Courageous Church. We have finished recently a detailed study and look in the second chapter of Second Peter about the life and the work and the evilness and the sin and ultimately the destructive end of false teachers. Uh, P- Peter spent a lot of his writing, a third or more of this letter, discussing false teachers, and as we come to the third chapter, there will be another warning, a warning of the mockers and scoffers who will hate the church at the, at the time of his writing, and I think that just gets worse and worse as the days go by, as Christ tarries, but he begins this chapter as he's going to warn of those mockers and scoffers. He begins by writing this, this picture, ultimately, of what a courageous church is, what the church must look like in these days of mockers and scoffers. So let's look at our text. I want to read this text, and then we'll ask the Lord's blessing on our time. We'll go ahead and read all the, the first seven verses of chapter 3. So if you will, please stand with me as we read the Lord's word. Second Peter chapter 3. Verses 1 through 7, this is holy and inerrant and infallible scripture, the very word of the living God. And says as follows, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets, And the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men." This is the word of God. May he write it upon our hearts for his own glory. You may be seated. Now join with me, if you would. Let's bow our heads and go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we could come before you and boast of all of our strength and might and all the good things we do, but as we have sung, we know that that is utterly pointless because... All of our good deeds never measure up. Lord, there's nothing that we can do to compare to the greatness of your glory and righteousness. All the strength that we could muster falls eternally short, infinitely short of the standard of Christ. Lord God, you are righteous and holy and just. 
You're good and faithful and merciful. You're gracious and compassionate, showing loving kindness to generation after generation. But, Lord, you are also a God of wrath. You have a holy indignation towards sin. You will not leave the guilty unpunished. Lord, you have reached down and called out and saved a people. This people is set apart to be the possession, the bride of Christ. We're set apart from the world so that we would be in the world but not of it. So that we would be a light shining in darkness but that the darkness would not ever stamp out the glorious light of the good news of the gospel of Christ. And so Lord, as we come to your word today, we come, Lord, I hope with reverent and humble hearts desiring to, to understand this calling that we have of being a light in darkness, being proclaimers of truth in a world that hates absolutes, in a world that hates that which is good and right and holy, that we'd be proclaimers of Christ in a world that hates righteousness. Lord, our call is to be courageous. Our call is to stand upon the truth. Lord, our prayer today is that you would show us how we ought to do that. That you would exhort us in our ongoing work of doing that. That you would encourage us as we face dark and difficult and evil days. Pray that you would put wind in our sails. That you would give us Strong shoulders that are able to carry a heavy load, Lord, not that we might receive attention or praise, but that we might bear heavy loads as we do work for your kingdom. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us in the endeavor of the preaching and teaching and understanding of your word today. Lord, again, our efforts are so frail. They fall so short of being able to accomplish this task. But God, you have given us your spirit. You've put your spirit within each one of those who are your children, who are made alive in Christ. And I pray that that very spirit in each of us would, would teach us would instruct us, would help us to understand the great truth of your word. Lord, I pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are soft and humble and eager to receive and apply the truth. Lord, I pray that you would receive all glory this day and forevermore in your church. May we be holy and blameless, the bride of Christ, secured by his work at the cross, a people for his own possession, people to magnify his glory. Would you show us Christ through your word? Would you magnify Christ to us through your word? May we be conformed to Christ through your word. We ask all this in the name of our Savior, the great King, Jesus Christ. Amen. The Apostle Paul, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, maybe a, a few years before Peter's writing of this second epistle of his, 2 Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul writes that in the last days, difficult times will come. Those difficult times will come, Paul said, because men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these." I think he sums up in that last statement that they will hold to a form of godliness though they have denied its power. 
Friends, it's evident that we are living in those difficult last days when evil is prevalent. You know, in evangelicalism today, there are many things that people cannot agree upon, but one thing that can be agreed upon by most within biblical Christianity is the evilness and the prevalence of wickedness in our day. There are two scriptures that come to mind when you think about the debauchery of our age. One of them is what we just read in 2 Timothy 3. The other that immediately comes to mind is Romans chapter 1. And you can come up really, I think, with two overarching ideas that define this age. According to 2 Timothy 3, people are lovers of self. They're given over to all forms of ungodliness because they love themselves and pursue their fleshly passions and desires. You think about Romans 1, what we can understand is people are given over to depraved minds. So those two truths define and describe the debauchery of our age. People are given over to the love of self and their minds are utterly depraved. This is easily agreeable, I believe, as I just said, in in our day. But even in light of that, So many, it seems, are surprised. They're taken aback by the evil that we experience. People don't, they don't understand the full depravity of man, the full wickedness and evil that man is capable of. But really, we have to understand that this evil goes all the way back to the beginning. It goes all the way back to the garden. You, You recall there in Genesis, the Lord created all things, Created man and woman, he said it was good. In essence, everything was perfect. Sin had not entered the creation. But it was just short of perfection because man had the ability to sin. And that's exactly what happened. When everything was good, Satan, the deceiver, the father of all lies, shows up on the scene with deception, with enticement to sin, with temptation and ultimately he sought to overwhelm the will of man he sought to do that and he did just that how did satan tempt adam and eve in the garden he pulled the string of their pride he gave them this temptation that they could be like god if they ate the fruit from the tree when everything was good when sin had not yet entered the world Satan comes in and pulls at the string of man's pride and man's love of self. After Adam and Eve fell, sin became the dominant nature of all humanity. It became the prevailing nature. We inherit a sin nature from Adam, and in Adam all have fallen. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. This history lesson should not be a, a, a new source of information to us, but it should be a reminder. A reminder that sin goes all the way back to the garden. Sin and corruption have existed effectively from the beginning, from the very first man and woman. And so with that, it should not be a surprise to us, just as Scripture tells us, that evil men proceed from bad to worse. They're deceiving and being deceived as they pursue their fleshly pleasures. And if that is the case, and it is, and we ought to consider this question, if things were so sinful in Peter and Paul's day, and they're proceeding from bad to worse, what does that say for our day some 2,000 years later? It tells us that our day will be marked by ungodliness by wickedness, by people pursuing fleshly pleasure. So maybe by now you're asking, what does this have to do with 2 Peter? What does this have to do specifically with 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2? Well, if we were to summarize the, the whole of Peter's writing, I think we could do so with one word, and that is the word courage. Peter is writing so that the church would be courageous. It takes courage to stand upon truth in a postmodern, post-truth world. 
It takes courage to stand up against the false teachers of our day, whether it's those who are peddling a false prosperity gospel or those once trusted teachers who have given themselves over to worldly ideologies. It takes courage to stand against that. It takes courage in our day to be the type of church, to be the type of family of God whereby we live together and hold one another accountable. The world wants no accountability. People will come in among us and they will leave us because they don't want to be accountable. It takes courage to do what the Lord commands. Christ's bride is to be pure, spotless, holy, and blameless. And it takes courage to live in that way in, in this evil and wicked day. We must be like John the Baptist. Consider him in his day. He was considered to be utterly crazy because he lived as a man separated from the world. He was from his conception, from eternity past, separate from the world, and he lived in holiness. He must be like Jesus great Savior. He stood for the truth. He stood for righteousness. He, like John the Baptist, stood against the establishment of his day, even though he knew that it would cost him his life. We must have that devotion to the truth, that devotion to righteousness. Simply, we must be courageous. We must be courageous. We need bold-hearted followers of Christ who will follow after Christ with wholehearted devotion. We need to be those who do not waver, who do not yield an inch when the world continues to try to encroach its way upon us, to tempt us, to deceive us, to pull us into the mud and dirtiness and wickedness of sin. We need to stand firm. We need to be gentle, for Christ was said to be meek, and lowly, gentleness was a trait of Christ. It is a fruit of the Spirit, so we must be gentle. We must be, as Christ was, humble. We must put on the mind of Christ and consider His humility and live in such a way, but we must also put on the whole armor of God. We must be ready to stand firm in the strength of His might. We must be ready to fight. We must be ready to go to battle against the world. We battle with weapons that are not of the flesh, but weapons that are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, we're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We are taking captive every thought to the obedience of Christ, and we are ready to punish all disobedience. Church, that must be our heart. That must be our goal, for that is our duty, our instruction given from our commander, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So let's focus down a little bit to, to focus our minds and our hearts as we look at these two verses. Peter is seeking and aiming to put steel in the spine of these churches. You go back to this, this day of Peter, and this suffering is new. The, the work of the Lord in this day was new because Christ had just come. You know, we, we have 2,000 years of experience of seeing how the church suffers, but to them it was, it was a new thing. Peter calls them to Christ-focused, spirit-filled, spirit-led action against falsehood. And as he does that, I think we can see an outline of some critically important traits of a healthy and courageous church. The courageous church must stand with sober and sincere minds while we pursue holy devotion, holy submission to Christ as we stand against the evil and the increasing animosity of our day. We do this by remembering the words of our Lord. We do this by remembering that Christ will return. We do this by submitting ourselves to Him. And there's really, I think, kind of three overarching things that, that we can see from verses 1 and 2, three traits of a courageous church today. 
Firstly, it has loving and persistent leaders. Second, we see that the church needs to have sober and sincere minds. And thirdly, we see that the church must pursue holy and submissive lives. So verse 1, first Peter gives this example of loving and persistent leaders in a courageous and healthy church. He says, this is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. I want to note very carefully that though this is the first point in the outline, uh, it's not necessarily the greatest of importance when we think about a courageous church. Of greatest importance when we think about striving to be a courageous church is that every one of us, every person who makes up a local body of Christ must be devoted to the Lord and devoted to obeying His Word. No man and no men can be the causation of this. So we could have as great of leaders as the Lord could possibly create, but if we as a church, as a whole, do not love the Lord and love His Word, we will fall flat. We will fall short in our duties. We also, though, remember that the Lord often brings this godliness about through faithful leaders, preaching and teaching the Lord's Word and leading in faithful Christ-likeness. So let's look at what Peter says, and there's really two, two things to note about these leaders, and it's really in, in, the, in the heading title. They are to be loving, and they are to be persistent in teaching and exhorting the truth. Think about Peter's love. We come back to this often in his writing because it's just so plain. It just comes off the pages how much Peter loves these saints. You know, Peter, in a way, you know, the church did not function exactly as we do today in that apostolic era. But in a way, Peter was like a shepherd of these churches. And his love for them, his pastoral shepherding care, it's just so notable. Look at how he writes, this is now beloved. These are people that he loves, that he has invested his life in. Think about 1 Peter. In 1 Peter, he has written to these churches who are suffering. They're going through deep, dark trials. They're being persecuted for the faith. And Peter his writing is just marked by genuine love, a genuine desire to build up and encourage and love the sheep of God. This type of love is not something that can be faked. No man, no men leading a church are able to, for, for long, fake this type of love. You know, we, we can easily, in our words, say how much we love one another. The, those who lead a church can easily tell the church how much they love and are devoted to those people, but the proof is in the pudding. The proof is in our lives. The proof was in Peter's life. Pastoral love, as it should be in a pastor, uh, pastor's life, it should be exemplary. What I mean by that is it's not something that is an uncommon command to all the saints. For we are all called to love with this type of genuine, selfless, devoted love and care. But the pastor's love, as was the case with Peter, should set the pace and it should be an example for the church to follow. It means this love must be genuine and sacrificial must be patient and kind. It must not be arrogant, self-centered, or jealous, or boastful. Kind of regurgitating to you 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul talks about what love is. That love mourns over unrighteousness, and it does not uh, rejoice in sin, but it rejoices with the truth. This kind of love bears all things. It believes all things, it hopes all things, and it endures all things. This type of love, again, is something that, that we can sometimes, I think, fake. It can be a put-on when we're 
around people, but one area in our lives where this type of love is generally very evident is in our homes. When, when we're with our families, when our, our guard is down, do you love sacrificially? Is your love genuine? Are you self-centered? Are you selfishly ambitious? Do you wink at and sweep under the rug the sin of your spouse or your children or another family member or loved one? Or do you rejoice with the truth? have to ask ourselves, I understand this is kind of an ironic form to ask this question, but we have to ask ourselves, do our leaders display this kind of love? I've had to wrestle with that question. It's been in the notes all week. Do our leaders exemplify this kind of love for the people of God? Not only do we say we have this kind of love, but is it evidenced in our lives? And this church is where you have a responsibility to those that the Lord has put over the church here, you have a responsibility to hold your leaders accountable. If you do not see this type of love displayed, that's where you privately would come to a brother and, and say, brother, are you walking in this type of love? That's the church being the church. But again, let's remember that this is not a command only for those called to the role of, of pastor. It's not even just for those who are called to the office of deacon. It is something that is required by the Lord for every saint of God. Everyone who is in Christ must pursue this selfless love. You must be sacrificial. You must put aside your own personal desires for the good and the betterment of your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a two-way street to love one another. Does this biblical love describe and define us as Grace Covenant Baptist Church? Does it describe and define you as an individual? Does it describe and define us as a body of believers? So we need loving leaders, and the courageous church also needs persistent leaders. Again, Peter says, this is the second letter I'm writing to you, which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. This is the second time he writes to encourage and to build up the church. He is, by definition, being persistent. He wants the church to be strong. He is writing to ensure that the saints are built up in the Lord and, and we can kind of draw out from this that relational persistence must flow out of genuine love. You see that Peter loves and then he is persistent. Those really don't flip around. The, the love has to come first because otherwise the persistence is not going to be a loving pastoral persistence and exhortation. Think about the circumstances of Peter as he's writing. He is undoubtedly already suffering for the faith. It's not like these churches were all suffering, but, but Peter was living, living a, a good and easy and peaceful life. No, he was already suffering assuredly too for the faith. We know what Paul went through, so surely Peter was going through similar, but his focus is not on himself. He knows these fellow saints are suffering, and he is laser-focused and devoted on building them up. Friends, our focus must not be on our own circumstances. Our focus, we can't get, get drawn into thinking about our struggles, our difficulties, our trials. We, we all face various trials. And one of the Lord's designs to help us push through those is that our, our attention is not upon ourselves. Our focus is on faithfully ministering to the saints with whom we are covenanted in a local church. In the church, our focus ought to always be on one another. And I'll say, as Peter kind of, as his example focuses this on the leaders, I would say that our leaders must lead the way in this focus upon others. 
We should learn from this example. This dear disciple, Peter, who, who had, had his struggles assuredly, sets forth for us an example to follow, a model that we should strive after, a picture of godliness that should be a, a mark that we run hard after to try to be more like Peter as he is becoming more and more like Christ. In difficult days, friends, people, the church, need to be pressed on. And with that understanding, you see that call to not be sucked into focusing on yourself and your own circumstances. Because everybody in this room, everybody in our circle, everyone within our church body needs to be pressed on, needs to be built up, needs to be encouraged, needs to be exhorted. And if you want to focus in on yourself and your own hardships, you're doing yourself and the entire church body a disservice. So when we take our focus off of ourselves, look to Christ and look to one another. There's an example, there, there are many examples in Scripture of this kind of love and persistence, but one that I would draw your attention to, Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, you may be familiar with that. That's where Paul is um, giving his farewell speech, as it may be, to the church and to the church leaders of Ephesus. And that whole, whole section is recorded in verses 17 through 38, but just draw out a few verses to see this loving persistence in action. So Paul has called the elders from the church to himself. He says, you, you know the way that I have lived. Verse 20, you know how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable teaching you publicly and from house to house. If, if there is a more descriptive verse about the loving persistence of a pastor in Scripture, I'm not aware of it. He did not shrink. He continued publicly and house to house. He loved the people, and he continued to tell them anything and everything that was profitable, anything and everything that would help and would build them up in the Savior. In verse 27 of Acts 20, he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. The ESV reads, the whole counsel of God. That is persistence. Paul declared to them the entire counsel and truth of God's word. Continues on, be on guard, verse 28, be on guard for yourselves and all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. Loving persistence. Friends, know the models of Scripture because it's by knowing these examples that we know our aim, that we see our goal, that we know that which we ought to pursue and strive after. You know, that's Paul as an example. A, a fallen and sinful man, though redeemed by Christ. Consider the example of Christ, the chief and the good shepherd. There, there's no greater example than what he gives us, and time would limit us to to even begin to consider the examples of Christ's love. But know that he is the, the ultimate example. He is the ultimate standard. So moving forward, kind of shifting the focus from the leaders to the church as a whole, the church in general. Secondly, we can see the call from Peter that a courageous church must have sober and sincere minds. Again, staying in verse 1, he says, this is the second letter I'm writing you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. You must notice that Peter says, I'm stirring up your mind. Peter understands that these people are not, he's not drawing them to Christ because the Lord has already done that work. He is stirring up. He is working and finishing the work that Christ has already began. These are those who have already come to Christ in faith 
and repentance. They are made new. They are made alive. They were once dead in sin, but they are now alive in Christ through faith and repentance, believing upon the work of Christ at the cross. Peter says, I write to stir you up. I write to awaken you. The word stirring up here, it's a Greek word, diagiero, which is a strengthened and intensified version of the typical word for stir up. It can be used in the sense uh, of awaking someone from a sleep. And so maybe the common word might be how you go to wake up a child that you don't want to wake up into a, a fit of anger. And so you're going to go and gently wake them up and bring them out of your sleep. But the word that, that Peter uses here is the type of awakening that you do in the middle of the night when maybe your tornado siren is going off and, and there's a tornado bearing down on your house and you are urgent in needing to wake that child up, to bring them from their sleep, to get them to safety. That's what Peter's trying to do. He's trying to awake these sleepers and bring them and push them and press them to safety. John 6 paints a, a vivid picture of this. This is the story of when Jesus walked on the water. The disciples were out in the boat, and John 6, verse 18, says that the sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. It was stirred up. Well, in Matthew's version of that story, he says that the disciples' boat was being battered by waves because of that blowing and contrary wind. So when the sea was stirred up, you can picture that, can't you? It was a storm that, that had waves crashing over the sides of the boat because it was stirred up, it was aroused, it was awakened. This is not a peaceful, gentle action. It's a jarring, almost, you could almost picture a violent awakening because of the urgency of the situation. Do you have this loving urgency for your fellow sheep? For those who are God's children who are maybe wandering or, or slowly walking off into sin? Do you have this urgency where you want to come quickly stir them up to love and good works? To faithfulness, to understanding of their sin? Or do you walk in and, and you want to keep the peace, so to speak, and you maybe fail to bring the truth to bear. Or, or maybe you fail to show the urgency necessary in your calling for repentance and your identification of their sin. Friends, we must be urgent. How does Peter stir up these sleepers? He says, I'm stirring you up by way of reminder. He's reminding them of the truths that they already know. 1 John 2, verse 21 says, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. Friends, we go with this urgency to those who know the truth. If it's someone who doesn't know the gospel, you go with urgency, but it's a different message. You're going to preach Christ and Him crucified. You may preach that to a a saved person who's wandering off into sin, but you have a whole nother lot of truth to bring to bear on their life. You do it because they know the truth. They know better than to dabble with sin. They know better than to flirt with temptation. You do that to a saint because they know better than to put themselves in a position where they might fall into sin and temptation. Peter says... I'm stirring up your sincere minds. That's the goal, to stir up a sincere mind. The, the old KJV translates this as a pure mind. I'm stirring up your pure minds, and I think that's a helpful translation because ultimately that's what Peter is aiming at. He's, he's trying to stir up sincere minds that are driven by pure hearts. The, the mind never stops working, so it's not just that he wants the mind running around in circles, but he wants the mind to be stirred up to purity, to righteousness, to that which is good. MacArthur wrote about that, that Peter's aim is an understanding that is purified and uncontaminated by the seductive influences of the world and the flesh. Friends, our goal is to show this 
sincerity of mind, this purity of heart in this dark and sinful and wicked world. You know, we are to be in the world, but not of it. We're to be like a city set upon a hill where our light shines so that the world may see our good works and not say, oh, look at that great church, but look at the great Savior of that church. Be stirred up to pure hearts and sincere minds. Ephesians chapter 5 would, would be a good um, example of this. Ephesians chapter 5, verses um, 6 through 14. We'll just read a, a few of these just to kind of set this picture before us. Ephesians 5, verse 6, the Apostle Paul says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Verse 11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it's disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they're exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you quotation from Isaiah 60 verse 1 so Peter says I'm trying to awaken you to a pure and sincere mind and then Paul says do not be partakers with darkness but instead let the light of Christ shine let the light of Christ expose evil let the light of Christ come and change and transform you so that you are a reflector of his glory that is our call before the world. We are set apart by Christ to reflect his glory in a darkened and sin-filled world. We do this by being of sober and sound and sincere mind, by being stirred up by reminder, by remembering these things that we have been taught and that we know. And it presses us into verse 2 and the third point. This morning, we are to have, if we want to be a courageous church, we need loving and persistent leaders, we need sober and sincere minds, and we need to live holy and sincere, submissive lives. Holy and submissive lives. Peter writes in verse 2, he says, he's stirring them up by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. I'm calling you, Peter says, to remember. And you say, where's the connection between remembering and holy and submissive lives? Turn back to the book of Jude. The last book before Revelation. Short letter, only a single chapter the letter of Jude, and we'll look at verses 17 through about verse 21. Jude 17, verse, Jude 17 through verse 21. He writes, But you, beloved, ought to remember. You ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a real close tie into what Peter has written. He continues, That they were saying to you in the last time there will be mockers, following after their own ungodly lust. These are the ones who cause divisions. They're worldly-minded and devoid of the Spirit. But you, so this is the connection, you ought to remember the words, and then you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life so we remember and in remembering we are built up we are built upon this as Jude describes most holy faith Colossians 2 verses 6 and 7 says therefore as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord so walk in him so walk in him having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. You walk in Christ by being built up in him, by your faith 
being made holy and growing in the knowledge and in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. As plainly as it can be stated, a courageous church is a holy church. If you want to be courageous in these dark days, you must be holy. A holy church remembers the Lord's words, it believes his promises, and it lives accordingly by acting in obedience, in submission to that truth. We're a holy people by doing what the Lord commands, but staying in, in Jude, there, there are some more things to look at. A couple other items to just think about briefly. Verse 20 says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Holy, submissive lives are praying lives. Holy and submissive people are people who pray in the Spirit. In Romans 8, verse 26, Paul says that the Holy Spirit helps in our weakness. He helps us in the, in the weakness, especially of our prayers. When we don't know how to pray as we ought, the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He strengthens our weaknesses. He helps us in temptation. He comforts us in trial and tribulation. And that relationship between the saint and the Spirit and the Godhead is lived in one sense through Prayer. Praying homes produce praying people. Praying people make up a praying church. And a praying church, I think, as we see here, is a holy church. And a holy church is a courageous church. So there's the link. If, if you want us, Grace Covenant Baptist Church, to be a courageous church, we need to pursue holiness and holiness that pursuit in one sense can be began in our homes and in the way that we pray with our families in the way that we teach our children to pray in the way that you husbands pray for your wives wives in the way that you pray for your husbands this prayer life is vital to the holiness of the saint verse 21 of Jude he says keep yourselves in the love of God. That is the root and the grounds of all of this. That we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Joshua chapter 22, Joshua is speaking to the tribes of Israel and he says, only be very careful, Joshua 22 verse 5, be very careful to observe the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and keep his commandments. And hold fast to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. We can pursue all of this. We can strive in all of our strength and might to be sober-minded and sincere. We can strive to be loving and persistent to one another. We can strive to live holy and submissive lives. But if it's not all rooted and grounded in love for the Lord... It will all fall short. Friends, we must love the God of our salvation. How do we do that? Well, just that. Think about the salvation that he offers. Think about his greatness, his glory, his power, his strength, his holiness, his righteousness. Think about the wrath that you deserve for your sin. And then recall, dear friend, that the Lord has made you alive in Christ. Not through works that you have done, but according to his mercy. He saved you through the washing of regeneration and through the renewal of the Holy Spirit. How do we walk in this love and obedience? Again, Jude is instructive. He says, waiting, verse 21, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. How can we be a courageous church in difficult days? look to our Savior. We look for the coming of the glory and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul would say it this way in Titus 2, we are looking for the blessed hope 
of the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're like those described in Hebrews 9.28 that understand that Christ will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. That is how we do this. That is how we are courageous through trying and difficult times. Is that our eyes are not fixed on the present. Our eyes are fixed upon the eternal glory that awaits us in heaven. Our eyes are fixed on the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So may we run with faith to win the prize. May we run with eyes fixed upon the Savior. May we stir one another up to love and good deeds. May we have that urgent heart that Peter shows to stimulate and to stir up one another to holy living. May we do this all the more as we see the day of Christ approaching. May we strive all the more as we see Christ's return becoming more and more imminent. May we strive together to be pure, to be holy, and to be blameless. May we be courageous. May we stand upon truth. May we hope in the truth. May we proclaim the truth. We do this, dear friends, by the Spirit's power and for the overarching goal of the glory of God. Stand, proclaim, hope all in and upon the truth. For the glory of God, may we be a people for His possession are set apart from the world, who are holy and blameless, pure and spotless, without any wrinkle or any such thing, without any stain, because that is the church that glorifies the Savior. We do that by His strength, by His grace, and by the power of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, and I pray that you would write it upon our hearts. I pray that its truth would, would be clear to us. I pray that you would help us to understand our calling in Christ. I pray that you would help us to understand that we must pursue this holiness. Help us to be courageous in dark days. Help us to stand upon the truth and to proclaim Christ to a lost and dying world. We pray as we move to the time of the Lord's Supper that it would um, be an act of worship that's pleasing and acceptable to you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.